Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to ACME. My name is Sean, and I work at public pro- in public programs here at ACME. Um, I'd like to welcome you all to Studio One this evening for another session of our Live in the Studio program, which is our ongoing series of talks looking uh, at everything to do with the small screen. Uh, tonight, we're, of course, in the studio in an, a bit of an attempt to reach enlightenment. Um, and as such, we'll be taking a look back at two seasons of the short-lived HBO program uh, that showcased a new face of tranquility in the form of Laura Dern's polarising, aspiring agent for change, Amy Jellico, um, and also looking at the impact of both the character and the series itself. Uh, leading tonight's exploration of Enlightened, I'm speaking with her true voice, uh, will be Dr. Joemi Baker. Uh, Joemi is the author of a PhD thesis entitled Broadcast Space, TV Culture, Myth and Star Trek. Uh, for which she watched over 700 episodes, I think it is, of the iconic show and its spin-offs. Uh, she's also no stranger to the Acme studio, and she's spoken at past events on everything from the escapades of Captain Kirk and Dr. Spock to the sex and violence of Rome and Game of Thrones. Uh, joining join me on tonight's panel is writer, editor, educator, and public speaker, Ronnie Scott, uh, broadcaster and producer and writer, Elmo Keep and writer, popular and digital culture enthusiast, and self-described pesky feminist, Amy Gray. Um, So I'm going to hand over to these guys to talk about Enlightened shortly, but before I do, uh, just a few quick pieces of housekeeping. We do record all of our Live in the Studio sessions for podcasts, so if you could turn off your phone so that doesn't interrupt uh, the recording, that would be great. Um, If anybody needs to leave for a bathroom break or anything at all during the session, uh, these doors are now kind of locked, so if you need to leave, you can just go down this exit here. Um, There'll be some lights and an usher that can show you in and out. Uh, But apart from that, please join me in welcoming our guests tonight and enjoy the show. Okay, so um, I I felt compelled to channel, so... You know, this is as good as it gets. How do I look? It's beautiful. Totally lovely. Lovely. <laughs> so I'm so excited that you're all here tonight because I do believe that we can change and we can be agents of change. And joining me as agents of chaos, I mean change, we have some fabulous panel members here today. And of course, we are all sad that Amy's no longer with us on the small screen. But as Laura Dern says... The great news is, and the difficult news for all of the people who love us, is that we, those of us who relate to Amy, can keep us alive in us forever. Maybe not the most complicated parts, but hopefully the part that demands an honest voice, whether people like it or not. And I think there's something in that for all of us. And of course, Laura should know, because anyone who starts out her career, 19 takes of eating ice cream without throwing up for more Martin Scorsese has something (laughs) to share with all of us. And I know what you're thinking, that this is all deluded and maybe we're crazy, but hey, if caring about something other than money is crazy, then we're all fucking morons, and I say let's embrace that. So first up, and I'm going to... She can be my little pet here. (laughs) Uh, We have Ronnie Scott. 
Ronnie is a writer, editor and teacher and public speaker. He's a frequent contributor to Mianjin, The Australian, The Believer and many other magazines and the comics and graphic novel critic for ABC Radio National. He's the author of Salad Days, a short book about money and food and forthcoming from Penguin Australia, the editor of The Best of the Lifted Brow out in October, which collects five years of writing from The Lifted Brow, a freeform arts, culture and fiction magazine he founded in 2007. So we're going to throw over to Ronnie. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I'm really glad that you're not wearing that wig anymore because I'm going to talk about Amy Jellico. And that would be kind of uh, a little bit strange, like I'm addressing you or something. Okay. Uh, all right. So, so there, is, there is tons to be interested in about Enlightened, obviously. It's a really complex and beguiling and bizarre show. And I think that that's one of the reasons that, that we're all here tonight. And it's also one of the reasons that, that it kind of didn't do so well and that it only lasted a couple of seasons. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's challenging in all these bizarre ways. Uh, but I think, for me, the most fascinating thing about it was Amy Jellico herself. Uh, and, and essentially, there's this kind of central question of whether or not she's a good person. That's, that's sort of the thing that you're asking, kind of right from the start. And so I, I want to go through the series a, a little bit, like so semi-chronologically, and talk about, uh, about, about the question of whether or not Amy Jellico uh, is good. You're sort of on the fence about her right from the very, very beginning. Um, she's... She's, she seems like she's a, a, a sort of good, likable, relatable character in a whole bunch of ways. Um, I think that, that, that part of that is that she's, uh, she's clearly striving to be a good person. Uh, she's, she's kind of swimming in this really unselfconscious, uh, ungainly way. Uh, she's kind of loping around in this way that, that's sort of very unsexy and very uncool. Um, and she's not wearing the greatest bathers either. Uh, which, which I, I think that makes you like her. It kind of breaks her down a little bit, makes her, her feel kind of human, kind of like someone that you want to spend a little bit more time with. Um, and she's clearly going through something really big for herself. Um, and that, that kind of automatically gets you on her side. Uh, but at the same time, it's a really, really ballsy intro to a character that you're, that you're meant to kind of uh, relate to and that, that you're meant to want to spend time with for the length of a series, you know, ideally for many seasons, in this case, two seasons. Uh, because... She's getting a lot out of this, this image, which I think for most people is a little bit gross, a little bit, a little bit kind of tough to relate to. Um, the people that she's, kind of, that she's laughing in this circle with and, and around the campfire, they don't seem like the world's most fun people. They seem like they, they might have a few issues. They seem like they might be a, a little bit problematic. She's probably not really laughing at a, at a very good joke. Um, she's, uh, she's with, so she's with these unappealing people um, and she's also confronting so she, she's preaching to us she's talking about uh, patience and kindness and wisdom which of course we can all agree are really terrific things like, right? like we, we all aspire to patience and kindness and wisdom um, but she's really speaking to us from, from an outsider point of view so she's confronting she says uh, and I'm here to tell you you can wake up to your higher self it's intrusive, it's invasive, it's forceful um, it's holier than thou. And it, most of all, it assumes that we are not ourselves enlightened. So this opening scene, it positions Amy as the person who's going to tell us this story. Uh, and it also positions us as people that she's going to, to convert and change, which is, is sort of an invitation to dance. It gets us into the show. Um, but it also really separates us from this character that we're, that we're kind of meant to go along with. So... Uh, when she says, I'm speaking with my true voice now, I think that that's kind of the, the, ultimate, the ultimate crux of this opening bit, where, 
where it, it could be assertive, it could be a really laudable thing to say, or it could be really indulgent. And that's something that the series plays with for the, for the, whole, for, for the, the whole length of the show. There's this, this opening gambit, this opening question, um, has, has, she, has, she, has she been enlightened at this, at this retreat? Uh, she's almost the myth of, of the artist in this really classical way, uh, which is someone that, that basically goes down to hell um, and brings back knowledge that the rest of us are too cowardly to go and get for ourselves, and that and she has something to show us, to show the world. Um, over the, the course of the episode, episode one, uh, this becomes increasingly tough for us to accept. Uh, at first, in really quiet ways, like we start to see her kind of steamroll people. Um, she, she feels disappointed by the world, which is, a, for us, a frustratingly human thing for her to feel. Uh, and she also gets increasingly desperate and acts super, super desperate. Um, she, needs to, she needs to have herself heard for, for reasons that seem increasingly personal and less about saving everybody else and more about saving herself. Uh, and this just gets more and more extreme throughout the series. Um, the other thing about Amy Jellico as a character uh, is that she's a really specific type of character. Um, and, and I think that this plays into the fact that Enlightened is a comedy. Um, so, so a lot of critical writing about Enlightened will be about the question of whether, whether it's a comedy or whether it's a drama. Uh, and it's, it's, this is sort of a, a funny question. I, like Back in the 90s, you remember Ali McBeal? That was called a dramedy, uh, which is a, a little bit of both, but that's a, that's a weirdly specific genre which didn't last. I think that Ali McBeal is, is pretty much a... a Silly drama? I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> Dramedy feels like a weird word. Um, but I think, I think Enlightened is a comedy. Uh, and one of the, the really chief reasons for that um, is that it's about putting characters through rough situations. It's kind of a sitcom in a weird way. Uh, and watching them muddle their way out of them. And some of the time that's Amy herself. Uh, but many of these problems are caused by Amy. So she's sort of the antagonist, protagonist of the show. That's one of the questions that you're asking while you're watching Enlightenment. Uh, and one of the other reasons that it's a comedy, I think, uh, is that... She's, she's this, this specific type of character, uh, which is called a flat character. So it's, it's problematic, it's strange, I think it's also interesting, sometimes productive, to compare different media um, to each other. So uh, it, it's, you, can, you can only go so far with it, but uh, television has, has... When we talk about television being in a golden age, a lot of the time people talk either with worry or, or with, with hope. Uh, about its, its supplanting the place of, of the novel in society. It works a lot more like a novel than a film does. Uh, it works a lot more like a novel than TV used to 20 years ago uh, in that in the, it, it sort of it, it shows change over time. It has a possibility for development. Uh, and you, you can't quite compare TV to, to the novel in, in lots of really concrete ways, but sometimes you can. Uh, and in this case, uh, you, can, you can compare it in interesting ways to both a novel and a short story. So E.M. Forster, uh, who's a, a terrific novelist and also a really famous theorist of the novel, um, he came up with this distinction between round and flat characters. So a round character was a character that, that developed, someone that you, that you watched over time, someone that, that, that played into this, this thing that we expect from narrative, which is that it shows cause and effect, it shows change over time, uh, it shows someone going through something, something difficult, something that forces them to reveal their true self, which is what Amy is supposedly searching for, uh, and coming out different at the other end. Uh, and, and a lot of TV series, especially in the last 10 years, certainly kind of show this. Um, but 
The, the opposite of this is a flat character. And so flat characters, they're not necessarily bad. They, they definitely have a place. But they're, they're really there to serve round characters most of the time. You can, occasion, you, can, you can get a novel sometimes that has pretty much all flat characters and they play off each other wonderfully. Uh, Charles Dickens is a novelist that does that. You can also have kind of more complex versions of flat characters. So in a Jane Austen novel, you will often have a, a really flat character who suddenly at the very end of the book reveals themselves to be round for just a second and then goes back to being flat. And that's where some of the, the kind of interest lies. But a flat character is kind of a one-note character, someone who, no matter what goes on, just kind of can't change. Uh, and they're, they're really there to, to, to provide contrast and to show that change is happening all around them all the time. Uh, and a flat character, it's so rare and so strange to see them as the protagonist of a story uh, because, again, change over time, cause and effect. How can a flat character really play into that as a, as a sort of a primary force? Um, but that's what Amy Jellicoe is, I think. I don't think she changes in Enlightened. I think that, that she, the show kind of tricks us into thinking that she changes. It's a really clever trick. So right at the very beginning, we see her have that breakdown, and then we see her go to the retreat. And then three or four minutes into the show, we think that she's on this, this journey of change. But really, we, we slowly find out, especially through those, those brilliant episodes that focus on Levi and on her mother and on Mike White's character that show us a little bit more of the world around her, we realize that she's kind of always been like this. She's, she's always caused these similar problems to people, uh, for people and always had these similar problems for herself. Um, she, she, she hasn't changed. This is just one more kind of revolution in something that, that really happens to her and for her all the time to different degrees. Um, and so, uh, one thing that, that about Amy Jellicoe as well is that she's kind of scary by the end of episode one. She's really scary by the end of episode one. Um, so she's sounding like an agent of the apocalypse, pretty much. She, she's talking about change. She's talking about goodness. She's talking about how she just wants to heal the world. Um, but right at the end of episode two, she's... She imagines this very pretty image, uh, which is back on that beach again. It's at night, so it's a little bit darker. Uh, she's picturing everyone she loves, people she's worked with, uh, uh, people that she, that she still works with, her mother, her ex-husband, etc. Uh, and she, she does that, that wonderful voiceover monologue that she does. Um, she, she's talking about her hopes for these people in her own life. Uh, but, but the language gets really weird. So she, she talks about how she wants a future where this earth itself has healed and where nothing suffers, but it sounds like a threat. It doesn't sound like a promise. Um, so by this point, we, we are asking all these questions about Amy. We're really, we're really thinking, is she just a, a troubled person who wants to do good or is she a bad, deluded person, a bad, deluded protagonist? Um, she seems like she's maybe failing to adapt to changes around her. She's scary, as I said. Um, she, she has no social graces, obviously, uh, and not really in a charming way either. She makes everything really uncomfortable for everyone around her. Um, she's kind of a hypocrite. Uh, it, it's really clear by this point that things that she expects of other people, she doesn't expect of herself, and that she gets really upset when other people expect them of her. Um, and she's the town crier, and no one likes the town crier. She's the, the person that points out all these things that are, that are wrong with the world, um, but... but uh, you know, which people are, are really kind of comfortable maintaining and sustaining. So 
By the end of episode two of season one, you can be engaged with Amy for, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, you can, if you are really irritated by her, really, really irritated by her, which is a fair response, you can wish to see her downfall. You can wish to see her fail at everything that she does. Uh, I, I figure that's probably a pretty rare response because Laura Dern is charming as hell. Uh, but you can, you can wish to see her succeed. You can wish to see her as an agent of change, uh, which is itself kind of fraught with, with this bizarre tension because change is another word for chaos, obviously, and that's something that the, the show plays with all the time. So in order to change something, you have to monkey with everything and you have to, to potentially kind of flub it up. It's a risky position for her to take as well as one for us to empathize with as a viewership. Uh, but either way, you're really not watching for her journey. You're not, you're not sort of thinking, will Amy change? It's more like, in a weird way, a short story uh, in that... The role of a short story, just because of length, just because of space, uh, is less about convincingly showing characters changing. Uh, it's a little bit more about slowly pulling back and changing our relationship to the characters, revealing more about their past and, their, and implying more and more varied things about their future um, so that you, you, your perspective on the character shifts. is less about them actually becoming a different person. And I, I believe that that's kind of what, what Enlightened does all along. I don't believe that Amy really deepens as a character. Um, I think that you just you come to understand her more and, and through that empathize with her a little bit more, even as she acts more and more disastrously. Uh, okay. So I think that, that, that by that point, really, really early in the show, it's clear that the show's central question is not what will she do and not what will she become, but is she good? Is she the thing that she thinks she is? Uh, is she, is she, or is she the thing that everybody else kind of thinks she is, which is a massive failure and a really a big fucking problem. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and that, that's kind of the thing that you're asking yourself as an audience for the rest of the program. Uh, so the show spends a lot of time building a really strong case against Amy Jellico. Uh, and in part that's because it's a comedy. Uh, in part that's because we kind of need to see her fail for a while. And that's where a lot of the drama comes from. But I, I believe that it's part of this sort of central question of whether or not she is good. So Elmo's going to talk about this a little bit more, actually. But the, 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 whole, uh, the whole idea that, that Enlightened like, end, ends in a certain way. It doesn't, it doesn't get a third season. And it, it ends in a satisfying way. But it's still obviously sad to everybody else that, that it, it didn't get a third season. I, I, the thing that I was most looking forward to in season three is seeing what kind of social media citizen Amy Jellicoe was. <laughs> I think that you can tell that she'd be really bad. You don't, you don't get a whole lot of her Twitter presence and her, uh, let alone you know, her Facebook presence or whatever else. Um, but I, I saw this article the other day, which was, is one of those things that you see sometimes, like a bit of a complaint analysis article about social media and the types of people that you see on social media. Uh, and it detailed these, these five characteristics, these five categories of annoying statuses on Facebook. Uh, number one, there's image crafting. The author wants to affect the way that people think of her. Number two, there's narcissism. The author's thoughts, opinions, and life philosophies matter. The author and the author's life are interesting in and of themselves. So that's the assumption behind the post. Uh, number three, attention craving. The author wants attention. Number four, jealousy inducing. The author wants to make people jealous of his or her life. Number five, loneliness, uh, which is probably the most uncomfortable. The author is feeling lonely and wants Facebook or Twitter to make it better. This is the least heinous of the five, but seeing a lonely person acting lonely on social media uh, makes everybody else sad. Uh, so the person is essentially spreading their sadness, uh, and that's a terrible thing to do, so it's on the list. Uh, Facebook is infested with these five motivations. 
other than a few really saintly people, most people I know, myself included, are guilty of at least some of this nonsense here and there. It's an epidemic, this author writes. Amy Jellico would be guilty of all five, and she would probably invent whole new categories through which to be terrible on social media, I think. And I think that, that that's just because it speaks to the idea that she's a really naked person. All of her, uh, all of her badnesses are on the surface, which is part of what makes her entertaining, and it's part of what, what makes you... Um, what, what makes you have to really grapple with her as a viewer as well. Uh, and again, it's not just about lackability. I think it's about fundamental goodness. It's, it's really questions that you're asking yourself because she's so, she, she wants so much, um, and she wants so much not just for, for the world, which is definitely true, but also for herself. And so again, I think that's the central struggle. Um, and, ma- and maybe that's the thing that you're kind of thinking, th- at least that I'm thinking to myself when I see uh, some, some kind of repellent post on social media as well. You're trying to to unpack it because it's a person that you, that you potentially know and love. You're trying to think why they're, they're posting this thing, but at the same time, you're kind of cringing and wincing. Uh, and, and I think that probably everybody's had social media regret as well. I, just, I wonder if Amy Jellicoe would have regret um, or if she would just kind of not, not, not ever kind of get to that stage. Yeah. But anyway, uh, ultimately for us, I think what she risks for us as a viewership um, is being boring. Her, her narrative stakes, especially in season one, it changes in season two, um, but her narrative, her narrative stakes are never high. Uh, it ne- the, the stakes are never real, real, uh, unless she creates them, which is part of the reason the show is so fascinating, but it's also something that, that makes it a bit tough to like Amy. Uh, so the, the one that I always think of is at the end of episode four, uh, which is that, that uh, the rafting trip that she has with Levi uh, that goes terribly wrong. Uh, at least to, to some beautiful transcendent moments. Like when she's in the, the motel room with him, he's getting high, he's, he's kind of rambling, and she's, kind of, she's, she's both disappointed and disgusted, and she's connecting with him anyway. And it's beautiful and incredible. Uh, it's, very, it's kind of like a Taylor Swift song. It's happy, free, confused, and lonely at the same time. Uh, but I would love to know what Amy Jellicoe thinks of Taylor Swift. Uh, but... But the, the conclusion that she draws from the experience, it's this beautiful moment of television in that it, it elevates this experience to something pretty universal um, because she's, she's not just talking about her marriage to Levi, um, she's talking about, about her life overall and human life overall. Uh, she, she talks about how she wouldn't have chosen her own life, but she'll take it because it's the one that she's got. Uh, and she ends this monologue at the end of this episode by affirming that there, there is such a thing as time. It's the episode where she goes, there's so much time, there's so much time. And it, 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 it makes you feel so good for, for a while, I think, that monologue. It's a, it's a great end to an episode, and it's one of the, the episodes that really made me love the series. Uh, but at the same time, when you, when you kind of step back and think about it a little bit, it's so crazy that we're, we're expected to love Amy for this monologue because it's, it's got nothing to do with the thing that's just happened. Uh, she's, she's obviously no one would have chosen their own life uh, but obviously they'll take it because it's the one they've got. Like how is that meant to be a laudable revelation to have? And, and then her final conclusion is that really is that there is such a thing as time which we all kind of know and, it's, <laughs> and she's really feeling it which is great but it's like that's not it, it's, it's a really relative problem uh, and it's one that she solves, and it's nice to see her solve it. But, but again, so this is, this is all about the case against her goodness. She's really self-involved. We know that. Um, but here's the thing, and maybe, maybe kind of getting towards the case for her goodness, uh, the case for her being a laudable character who we, can, who we can really love and really root for in an unproblematic way. Uh, so uh, irony um, pervaded 
the 90s. It was a, it was a really kind of big part of 90s culture, uh, and, uh, and it's still a, a big part of, kind of, of culture today. Uh, the idea that, that we, we laugh at things that, that seem sincere, that's irony at its worst. Uh, and there was, there was a writer named David Foster Wallace in the 90s um, who, uh, who wrote a book called Infinite Jest, which, I, which for, for Enlightened makes me think about because it's a rehab novel, and this is a rehab series. Uh, and in that novel, he was really responding to this, this kind of 90s culture of irony by trying to dig past it and trying to dig towards, towards really like platitudinous, boring, unsexy, uninteresting, uh, unadorned, uh, truth, things that could really, really help people, and trying to make them feel like they weren't platitudes, uh, trying to make them feel like they were they were, were true expressions of feeling, however unartful, however un, uh, uncool in, in lots of ways. So the, the way that he, that he kind of worked with it was with AA meetings, which is, again, why it reminds me of enlightenment. Um, the types of things that people will kind of commit to, the types of things that people will say at, at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings um, are really, they, they seem so boring from the outside, but if you've been through addiction, which I haven't, but which, which Amy has in a way, and which, which um, David Foster Wallace had before he wrote this novel, um, they, they really, you get to a point, apparently, where it really kind of cuts through and it, and it really feels real. And I think that that's one of the things that Amy kind of touches in us as a viewership, uh, is that she's, she's so... She's so horribly frustrating for everyone around her. She's so unfun. You would never want to. You would never invite her to a baby shower. You would certainly never invite her anywhere else. Uh, and you just don't want her in your life. But at the same time, there's something really truthful and really, really genuine and really meaningful in what she's doing, even though she's causing all these problems and even though she's so hypocritical and so so human in lots of ways. So it's always really hard to look at this stuff. Um, but at the same time. It's, it's clearly really important, and that's something that we all sense, and that the people around her, increasingly as the show goes on, seem to sense as well. Which kind of, which, which brings me, me around to maybe one of the, the main reasons that Amy Jellicoe, I think, is good in the end, which is that even though she doesn't change, I don't think she does, I could be wrong, everybody around her does. Uh, so uh, Tyler, Mike White's character, he changes, especially through the course of season two, her mother even changes, and her mother seems like the person least likely to change, including Amy Jellico. Um, but but in, in the last sort of 30, 60 seconds of the final episode, she, she sees Amy in the paper and she smiles. And I think that that's enough for us to know that she has in some way been changed uh, by this experience with her daughter that we've witnessed throughout the show. Uh, even Krista changes, I think. Krista, Krista changes uh, and, and, and complicates in a way that, that I think... Uh, uh, exhibits change over time. It's not just us understanding more and more about Krista. Uh, and of course, especially Levi. Levi changes a lot. Uh, and Levi makes explicit the idea that Amy is, although she doesn't herself change, she really is an agent of change, and she really does change everybody around her. Uh, so Levi, Levi obviously goes to the same retreat, the same enlightenment retreat that Amy went to. Uh, and, and he doesn't go through exactly the same thing as she does. He, he doesn't find the turtle... He doesn't find the same things to believe in, uh, but he writes to her in this letter that, that she did find it and she did believe in it, and that's enough for him. And that's, I think, what makes, or at least made me realize as a viewer, um, that, that she, does, she does inspire true change around her. Uh, and so, again, uh, Amy doesn't change. What, what passes for change in Amy is just fluctuations in her regular emotional state. We get a clearer and clearer picture of the, of the idea that that this is just the way she's always been and probably the way she'll always be as well. In a weird way, she's a, she's a little bit doomed, I think. Uh, but, but I think her, her, sense, uh, 
her sense of other people, which is... So she, she annoys other people, she frustrates other people, but she in, in some way manages to get through, through to them, which I don't think is purely about chance. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's in some way she targets some part of them that makes them uncomfortable, but also makes them change. Uh, and as Levi says, um, I, I know that, that you did, that you did see these places that I wasn't able to see, and that's enough. And maybe that's enough for, for everybody around her to become a better person. Um, so it kind of works. Uh, ultimately, as well, I think that there's a fact which, which the show often teases at before eventually out and out showing us, uh, especially in season two where the story changes a lot, that she's truly up against something really evil at Abaddon. Um, something, uh, you know, for, for so much of the show, it looks like she's, she's maybe just, she, it teases the idea that she's deluded, that she's just wanting petty revenge against this company. Uh, and then it slowly reveals away, like pulls back these layers, and you keep expecting her to, to fail and to, um, to see that, that, that to, to be confronted with the idea that there's nothing truly evil about this company. And I don't believe that the show believes that, that humanity is evil, but I, but I, I think that it believes in the, the evilness of, of corporate structures and, and corporate America uh, and, and, and the possibility of, for institutions to corrupt individuals' morality as well. Uh, but, but the thing that she's up against is meaningful, is real, she is right, and it's bigger than her own petty concerns. Uh, and when she realizes this, and when, when it becomes clear to her, clearish to her, maybe, she never quite knows what's going on, uh, that she's up against something terrible, she does just fight harder, which is interesting. Um, and so in the face of what she's up against, annoyingness and, and the ability to make people uncomfortable around her, it may not be so bad. Um, it, it, it may not be kind of the biggest evil that's out there in the world. And so maybe contrast is, is the thing that makes her good in the end. She acknowledges that, that everything around her is really beguiling, it is really magical, uh, and, and it's really, there's something wrong with it. Um, so, so I think that the message of that is that, that beautiful things can be terrifying, terrifying things can be beautiful, and both of these things can be good as well. Thanks. Thanks, Ronnie. Uh, we're going to hold audience questions off till the very end when we've heard from our panellists. But, Ronnie, I was interested in this opposition between good and evil. I'm wondering also if it's a question of innocence and ignorance against evil too, which kind of gets wrapped up in goodness at the same time. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that, that the thing about Amy Jellico as well is that I, I don't think that you necessarily see her as innocent at, at very many points because she's... she's it's clear that she's lived a really long life before we see her in the show. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and it's clear that she's, she's had enough mistakes, and enough mistakes where the consequences haven't just been bad for her, but for the people around her, that she probably should have learned from this by now. <laughs> and so, so I don't think that you, that you see her as, as innocent. Mm-hmm. I think that you see her as, as crawling back from a really bad place that she's mm-hmm. been in for a long time. And maybe never quite crawling back from it, but trying to, like, to bring something bad down with her. Maybe. Mm. Yeah. Do you think maybe then she's willfully ignorant on some level? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a sort of survival thing. It's yep. interesting. Thanks, Ronnie. We're going to move on to Elmo. Um, Elmo Keep is a writer, broadcaster and producer whose writing has been published widely in publications including The Age, The Monthly, The Hairpin, The Mianjin, and whose work as a writer-producer has appeared on three series of ABC TV's The Hungry Beast. She's also worked as a digital media producer and is currently the digital director of The Lifted Brow. We can welcome Elmo, please. Thank you. This is so neat. Amy might say. Super neat. It's 
really fun. Um, so I wanted to talk about the show from quite a nuts and bolts perspective, which I hope won't be too, you know, insidery. Um, but I'm a critic of television. I've been a, a writer of television, a producer of television. But more than any of those things, I'm a fan of, of television. So I'm very interested in how things work. And I'm going to take them apart a little bit in looking at what I think are the elements that made Enlightenment such... Enlightenment. Fuck. We had too many beers. Enlightened. Such a special show. <laughs> and also, um, there was like one further thing that I wanted to say about television first, which is that I really hate this current distinction that's being made about prestige television or event television or the novelisation of television that we've been hearing about sort of since The Sopranos, like there was never good television before that, but that's like, you know, a handy sort of benchmark for people to point to. Um, and I hate this because it's so pointless and elitist. And what those signify, like, you know, saying that about television, what that's actually about is about privileging the position of critics. And it's okay now, intellectually, for people to write vastly about television because now it's a suitably highbrow pursuit for writers to dedicate their time to, which is just such crap. Um, write about whatever you want, just don't be boring. That's pretty much the rule for writing. So don't twist yourself in knots about the fact that you write about popular culture and justify it. Just enjoy it, you privileged idiot. So there are no guilty pleasures. There are just the things that you enjoy, whatever they are. And, you know, people who... Why anyone would ever sort of add this, la this layer of status anxiety about if something's worthy or not um, to something as pleasurable as television is really insane to me. And picking fights about what is and isn't real culture just speaks of a particularly gluttonous moment, I think, where we can afford to have those kinds of discussions. But for people who love stories... How they come to us doesn't matter, whether they're television, novel, radio play, audiobook, graphic novel, short story, cinema. There are no distinctions to be drawn between them as to which are more worthy than others on this totally arbitrary sliding scale. So I just wanted to get that out of the way, but all of which said Enlightenment was a fucking great show. Yes, so we all felt like burning down HBO's offices when they cancelled the show. And there was a great gif of just that going around, or GIF as the guy who made it insists on us calling them, even though it stands for graphic interface. Like, we'll say GIF. Anyway, so it was this GIF going around Twitter instantaneously meeting the announcement on uh, social media of the cancellation of Enlightenment with a lot of sad face and angry face um, emoticons that when they announced that the show wouldn't be renewed. Um, but I think that for us as fans, we were saved from the truly horrendous pain that could have come with this announcement, the pain of the incomplete story arc. We all know this pain, Deadwood and Carlisle come most searingly to mind, and thankfully we were saved from it uh, within, like, by Mike White, who wrote every single episode, created the series with Laura Dern, and who played the role of Tyler. As the writer of the show, Mike White was very, very aware of the possibility that it could be cancelled as he was writing it, as it was in production. Even after the first season, before it got to the end, it could have been cancelled. They were hoping that wouldn't happen, obviously. And when you watch that first season, it works as a self-contained story where it would have been disappointing to have been left there, but it still resolved the major ideas raised by the show in a satisfying way. You know, Amy is going to bring down the company, so her character arc is complete for us if we had never come back to the world of the show. 
which thankfully we did. But there are many shows where producers assume that everything's going well, they're going to get another season order, and so if they sort of leave all these dangling plot points, it will just mean that they'll get forced into recommissioning their show, which is, like, absolutely not how those decisions are made. So that's how we end up with all these shows that just, like, never never resolve things properly, and it's really sad. And so... uh, what I think about Enlightened, the, the elements unique to how it was created, which made it work so perfectly, um, which is that similarly to, to Louis or Curb Your Enthusiasm or other, other comedy, comedies of recent years, um, which is interesting that Ronnie thinks feels it's a comedy, I really feel it's a drama because um, the laughs that we get, other than Dougie being Dougie, which is funny, <laughs> they all come from these horrible, horrible discomfort. We're laughing because if we don't laugh, we we'll don't know if we ought to keep watching. It's, I feel like it, the comedy isn't deliberate, but that the drama is, is very deliberate and, and very deliberately plotted. Um, so maybe it is a successful dramedy. Maybe Alec McBeal was not the end of the dramedy. Um, so, like Louis, it is one person's uncompromising and singularly executed vision with absolutely no compromise. Um, Enlightened was not designed by a committee or written in a writer's room. It had only one author. And as a result, tonally, it it never wavers, even from the first episode. And that tone, which builds the world of the show as being very real to us right from the beginning, was established early and didn't change at all over the course of the two seasons, which is really pretty, pretty rare. Um, and having that level of creative control has some wonderful results that we've seen that are striking in their vision, like Breaking Bad or, or Louis, and not so great, like Mad Men, which is a terrible show. Um, second to the writing is, is the casting. So Mike White and Laura Dern worked together very closely on the creation of the show for a long time before it was put into production, and they intimately knew the interior lives of these characters. And in the case of this difficult main character who we're aligned with as the entry point into the world, I think the difference between an actor who also created the part and someone cast purely as the performer uh, was quite key and we see these really marvellous results in the performance. Um, And we need to feel sympathy for Amy even when she's acting in appalling and destructive and self-absorbed and deluded and spiteful but not ever aware that that's how she is ways as well as when she acts compassionately and warmly and bravely and genuinely and funnily and lovingly and in inspiring ways. And that was a very, very tricky balance for an actor to achieve, and Laura Dern was so successful at it. And I think that having been a creative as well as an actor uh, really contributed to that deeply authentic portrayal that we see of this character. Um, And another casting note that we would probably all know about is that um, Amy's mother, Helen, was played by Laura Dern's real mother, real-life mother, um, Diane Ladd. And there's so much in their relationship that is expressed by what is not said, what goes unexpressed. And most times their relationship is characterised by withholding and denial and being unable to communicate, um, which is deeply sad. I think that that's the the saddest line, the saddest storyline. but there's so much passing between them in only the looks that they sometimes give each other that I think only a lifetime of living as real mother and daughter could make possible. So that's one of the really you know, special and unique elements of the show. Um, so there were all these layers of really deep involvement from the major players that I think are what really gave Enlightened the emotional depth um, that constantly prevented what could easily have been 
in lesser hands a lot of really twee and over-the-top material from being unwatchable, even when we get driven right to the edge of just discomfort by a lot, a lot of places that we get taken into the show, in, uh, taken into with the show. And it's a really big ask, as, as Ronnie had, had beautifully illustrated, to get us to buy into the story of this self-absorbed mess of a person on a mission to repair the damage of their life and in that mission inflicting more damage and then you know being in this very oh just so difficult at times to watch journey and stick with her all through those many many times when she fails and that we're able to care so deeply for Amy as a character and be so affected by her determination to fix things despite these huge number of ways that she sabotages herself along the way is down to a very, very deft performance of a very finely written character, I think. But it isn't just the characterizations that work so well. It's the economy of visual language that so vividly creates the world of the show. And when we think of the, the basement that they get consigned to in data entry hell, the brightness of this basement... Um, is perfectly captured by these clean and shiny white plastic and glass surfaces and straight lines that are meant to invoke in corporate design you know, maximum productivity and transparency, but which instead denote the complete lack of colour in the lives of the people who are being chewed up by the company that employs them and this space that they're in is literally draining the life out of them. While the upper floors of the Abaddon offices, there's more visual cues that perfectly skewer the underhanded techniques of the company, which it tries to offset with its environmentally friendly images of those huge walls filled with like giant photos of limes and tree leaves and all those other, you know, supposedly beautiful images. But these locations never feel like parody. They strike a very real tone while signalling to the viewer the true intentions of these spaces, which is to control and to cover up. And so I won't talk too much about Amy and how she's a welcome respite from the sociopathic male anti-heroes we've been watching for the last few years, because Amy and Ronnie together have gone and have done this wonderfully and going to do this wonderfully. Um, but I want to talk about a couple of instances where I feel that Mike White's control and economy as a writer had extremely powerful and, and moving results, which are the two bottle episodes which aren't about Amy. So... These are the ones dedicated to Tyler, the ghost is seen, and to Helen, Amy's mum, consider Helen. So I feel like um, that these really disparate modes of storytelling, um, that they exist within the same universe of the same show, is really very indicative of the the deft power that that Mike White had as a writer of being able to create these two as equally uh, revealing and really moving uh, scenes that were told in such economy of style, but in such different in such different such different ways, and even in these really brief scenes, so much is conveyed to the audience about the inner lives of those characters, and it's very explicit in the case of Tyler because he longs to be understood and to be seen, and so this is the first time his character is given any space to do what is most meaningful to him, which is to express himself, even when he fears most expressing himself, being seen. But in being seen, being misunderstood, this is his worst fear. And this is in absolutely perfect keeping with the character that we have so far only seen through Amy's eyes. And in the case of of Helen, Amy's mother, her interior world is about not expressing herself, not speaking to the things that have made her the way that she is, and that you know, being the suicide of her husband, of Amy's father, which is an event that tells us so much about Amy, about their relationship, about how she came to be who she was... Uh, even though we're seeing that here through her mother's eyes or through our, our view of her mother. 
And in giving an episode over to Amy's mother, we get to enter the world of what seems to be a very hard and tough character, which is something that fills us in on the dynamic between Amy and her mother and fills us in on why Amy is how she is, even though we never get to see if the two of them directly address the themes that are brought up in that episode face-to-face. They still don't have that conversation, but we understand what the unspoken thing is. Um, And in these really brief scenes, you can see how the visual language and the language of dialogue can work so differently within the same show. And I just think that they're really beautiful, both of them. So I wanted to finish with what uh, Mike White hoped viewers would take away from the show, what was his authorial intent, which was in an interview that he gave to NPR when the show finished. And you can see art or fiction or whatever being where you try to create something that's hopeful, that also recognises pain and doesn't run from the pain. It actually acknowledges it because I feel so much of entertainment right now is about distraction and a bombardment of light and noise. And whether I've succeeded in that or not, I feel like there is an impulse there. I don't want to walk away from what I'm trying to achieve, but which is to try to make something that is a little more contemplative or a little bit slowed down or a little bit more about how we live as opposed to something that's about distracting you from those questions. So I think what he really wanted for us as viewers to take away was nothing less than to be enlightened. Thanks. Thank you, Elmo. Um, I think it's that's a really interesting point to end on um, with Mark White talking about you know that, um, that perhaps we can take a moment not to be distracted from those questions when the mm. clips that you showed are from people who were sort of shying away perhaps from those central questions about themselves. So you know Tyler is perhaps too comfortable in not being seen, mm. and Helen is too comfortable in. Um, not confronting her discomfort. Mm. And so I wonder, you know, how you see Amy responding to that, that idea of, of distracting us. It's interesting, I think, because what I think the show is actually about is rising above self-absorption and self-interest because mm. everyone except Tyler is this incredibly self-interested person. And so when we get these perspectives on other characters' lives, it's about showing that. It's about showing the world outside Mm. ourselves and specifically the world outside Amy, who is, like, the epitome of the most self-absorbed character that we maybe have ever seen as a protagonist, possibly. Um, So, yeah, that's one of the things that I think the show does really well is making those uncomfortable things really explicit. Mm. And then the, the reflection is done by us. It's less done by the characters, which is what, you know, Ronnie was sort of talking about, the, the flat character that doesn't exist to change. It's about us being able to reflect on their lack of change. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because then I wonder then if the reason we can put up with this discomfort is because there's beauty in that discomfort. I think absolutely. Yeah. If it didn't have these amazing and just gorgeous transcendental moments of really, I think, very profound, like I cried a lot of times watching this show, I'm afraid to tell you. Um, and so did my, my boyfriend. Like, I mean, we found it really moving. And mm-hmm. if it didn't have those elements, it would just be unbearable. It would be, you know, those, those are the things that it wasn't afraid to meld. It wasn't afraid to meld really high-minded ideas of beauty with, like, the absolute horrible truth of our, you know, narcissism and what that can bring, you know, those two things existing. And I think that really goes to, um, you know, Mike White's project of showing 
real life, like what our lives are really made of, not distracting us with Game of Thrones, not that it isn't awesome and it doesn't have a place. <laughs> um, but yeah, just being very explicit about the, the, the nastiness and the beautiful things. Mm, coexisting. Mm. Thanks. So we're going to go to Amy Gray, who is a Melbourne based writer interested in feminism, popular and digital culture, and parenting. And you can find her work in The Age, Cindy Morning Herald, BBC, ABC, among others. She's an occasional broadcaster on ABC, Radio Adelaide and 2UE. She's also the creator, writer of an aptly named and very entertaining blog, peskyfeminist.com, which I got totally distracted on and lost several hours of my life to, where she covers everything from motherhood to the top 20 women to follow on Twitter. And she's currently working on her first fiction title. So will you make Amy welcome, please? You've heard some uh, very, very gracious and very, very charitable interpretations um, about Enlightened, and I'm about to shit all over that. <laughs> so, yeah, you. Um, I'm basically going to talk about Amy Jellico, who I'm just going to refer as, to as Amy Jellico because if it's just Amy, I'm going to worry you're all bitching about me. But um, I'm going to talk about her characterisation and how she is fundamentally unlikable, but why? That's an amazing thing. And I want to open this by um, quite openly bitching about a new age person I did some work for. And she used to offer me some free psychic services, um, which I'd accept solely for their potential as anecdotes because I'm a really horrible person. And, and she, was, she was as serene as she was self-congratulating. And uh, she credited one of my very pained visits to the ER where I spent a couple of hours attached to a drip and updating my friends via text message because I'm totally an attention whore. And, um, and she credited that to her amazing power as a feng shui practitioner. Now, she told me that while I was still doubled over in pain in my apartment, which I had never changed based on her recommendations. Another time she performed a psychic healing um, on me, which basically consisted of her um, waving musical instruments all over me, and I really still want my Oscar for not laughing. And, <laughs> but she basically, her advice during this psychic healing was wrapping up everything that she hated about me. She disliked a lot about me um, as a kind of um, form of psychic advice. So... Um, my, uh, my past life, as multitude of past lives as a warrior, was actually to, you know, responsible for the fact that I'm an aggressive, attention-seeking drama queen today. And um, my dislike of New Age and spirituality and organised religion was because I was actually a secret Cathar in a previous life as well. And my haughty arrogance, I'll have you know, is uh, due to a past life as a Japanese princess. Now, if any of you are <laughs> insulted by how I have characterised New Age people there. I want you to know I am really sorry. That's not me talking. It's all my past lives, OK? So, <laughs> namaste. Um, but, you know, even though I've kind of made a mockery of her in a really nasty way, um, I, I can only imagine she actually tries her hardest to be enlightened uh, and to quell every kind of mortal foible. Um, that she has. And that, that reminds me of Amy Jellicoe. You know, both despite 
the very, very best of intentions. Uh, they embody the worst of the New Age self-help culture, which is often just a form of uh, selfishness accessorised with crystals and cut-price incense sticks. And they're just trying to find meaning in their lives and there's nothing wrong with that. They do want to create change. But being human, it's hard, you know. It's, you know, you've got the perfection of serenity and enlightenment contrasting with the imperfection of reality and personality. You know, these are things that are always going to be in conflict. And this is where the TV show um, really shines. It really humorously takes apart the artifice and the hypocrisy of consumer-based enlightenment while slowly revealing what the true path of enlightenment might be for this small group of uh, characters who do end up affecting great change. And, uh, and central to this and its success is the lead character of Amy Jellicoe. Well, I'm going to be quite... Um, I'm just going to call it as I see it here in case you were um, in any delusions with the previous three minutes. Um, Amy Jellicoe is a pain in the ass. I don't want to be around her. I would hide from her if I possibly could. I don't know if any of you noticed it, but you know how she um, says hi on the telephone and it's really sweet and it's really saccharine and it gets really high-pitched and it's really drawn out? That actually causes physical pain for me. <coughs> and um, it kind of scratches at what I presume is either my soul or you know, the remainder of my lung. But I think she's one of the best characters on TV, and, well, was, and I really, really do miss her. And that's because she embraces or, you know, Mike White embraces her being unlikable. I mean, like, in the opening, uh, you know, few minutes of the pilot, we see her on the loo having an ugly, ugly cry. I mean, she's really going for it. Within two minutes, she's called someone a cunt and she's run through the entire office screaming, swearing, crying, pulling open, um, you know, uh, elevator doors all the while with running eye makeup everywhere and people are worried or people are entertained by this meltdown. And that just sort of sets the marker for the next two seasons. You know, she disturbs the peace wherever she goes. Nothing is sacred, nothing is you know, going to be safe from her need to disturb the scene uh, for whatever, you know, motivation she's got at that time. So, you know, drinks with the ex-husband, catch-up dinners... Canoeing weekends, um, lining up dates, lining up co uh, for coffee, job interviews, <laughs> meetings, all of these situations are ripe for a Jellicoe etiquette grenade. And she has <laughs> no idea of her, the impact of her behaviour. In fact, it's absolutely shocking to her that anyone would respond to her with anything less than open arms, namastes, blessings, clearings, all that sort of thing. There's very little kind of stoicism to her. She'll sit on the crapper, she'll have her angry, angry cry after being shifted to uh, cleaning products after a bad affair. She'll yell, she'll jump out of her car, yell nonsensical abuse at someone who's honking at her to get the car park after that um, getting dumped by the hot politically correct investigative journalist with that kind of cheap leather necklace thing happening. <laughs> and um, who Amy thought was her reward for being enlightened because that's how she operates. If I do this, I'm going to get this. This is going to make everything better. Everything's very simple. But she's not going to go quietly. She's not going to go politely. And she's going to do the worst thing society thinks women can do, which is make a scene, as we have seen. And she's going to continue um, to make scenes because it's in you know, keeping with you know, working her mission. And it's a mission that's not actually in service to the community or to the status quo. And actually, 
if we're going to compare unlikable characters just for one moment, uh, one incredibly unlikable character is the character of Sherlock, and um, specifically BBC production here. And that character is thoroughly unlikable, absolutely loathsome, rude, hostile, hates everyone. But his behaviour or his results actually end up servicing the status quo, servicing society. So in many cases, it's actually accepted, it's tolerated. Um, but then with Amy Jellicoe, she's actually not really servicing the status quo. She's actually directly against the status quo and she's a hot mess and she's, you know, she's doing exactly what they don't want. So she's not going to be rewarded. She's actually going to get rejected. And you see these progressions of rejections for her professionally and personally. Uh, and she actually continually rejects that social burden for women to be unlikable, you know, to be likable. And there's something to say about, you know, gender when it comes to unlikable TV characters and why they're so compelling. And this was um, briefly referred to by Elmo. You know, we have a, a whole raft of unlikable uh, male characters. We've got Tony Soprano, Don Draper... Sherlock, though admittedly the US version is far more diluted. Um, we've got Walter White, we've got Frank Underwood, we've got Tom Kane, even to a degree, Louis C.K., but, you know, we're okay with this and we really celebrate the diversity. It's actually not that much of a novelty, we're okay. But when it comes to women being unlikable or showing that kind of complexity, it can be quite challenging for viewers. And it's actually, it is kind of cringy and upsetting to watch, uh, so it goes against our programming. You know, women are above all expected to be likeable and predictable and to not make a scene. And G Amy Jellicoe is unpredictable. She does make scenes and she's really not very likeable. Um, and so often when we look at the leading heroines that we've got in TV drama at the moment, they've got this burden of being perfect to the point of being flat. So I'm just going to put this one out here. Daenerys Targaryen at Game of Thrones is just so dully predictable her, you know, the success of every trial. Um, oh, I'm going to surprise everyone. And then before she literally crowd surfs over a sea of serfs who call her mother. And then, you know, as much as I love her, Alicia Florrick, who just numbly watches uh, a yet another humiliating uh, betrayal or clusterfuck in her personal or professional life before solving it with can-do grace or a good work ethic. Um, it's boring. It's absolutely boring. And so we may support these characters and we may like them, but they're safe. It's okay to watch them. It's not as uncomfortable for us to watch them because they're predictable as the passing seasons. And, you know, they've got that reliance upon the kind of martyred stoicism. But then there's Amy Jellicoe, and why do we end up supporting her, despite the fact she's just so utterly painful to watch? And, you know... Quick show of hands, who here in the audience would actually be friends with Amy Jellicoe in real life? <laughs> Let the record note there was one hand. <laughs> All on your own there, my friend. Um, but we end up supporting them because they're this sort of sacrificial lamb of our darker selves, of our, our secret fear that maybe everyone hates us. Maybe we are actually just a pack of big jerks and maybe we do just go from, you know, accident to injury to indignity to, you know, embarrassment. And if we can get someone else to do that for us, that's okay. Perhaps that's part of it. 
But maybe we're also sick of the kind of strong, likeable female characters that um, I've just previously mentioned. And that was a point uh, just recently picked up by Sophia McDougall over at uh, the New Statesman. She uh, wrote an article on this with a very to-the-point um, headline called uh, Why I Hate Strong Female Characters. You should go read that. But she, um, she just shows with really kind of blunt precision that so often we've got these male characters with faults and frailties, but they're still considered really acceptable conventional heroes. You know, so James Bond, utter psychopath. He's a broken human who cannot exist in society. Um, Doctor Who often leaves his companions despite their love and their loyalty and to a point where he actually had to have an emotional revelation from Davros that for a Time Lord who hates weapons, he uses his companions as weapons. Um, Walt's a total bastard. Tony Stark uses uh, his libertarian douchebaggery as a branding strategy. And um, quite frankly, at the moment, we've got a TV series that's you know, centred around a really charismatic serial killer. And I'm, I'm not talking about Dexter. I'm talking about the one who digs 70s-style uh, suits, and that's Hannibal. Just a few months ago, actually, I was watching Hannibal Lecter betray Will Graham, and I thought, no! Why? Why are you going to do that? Why'd you let me down? I was shocked before I realised that I was shocked by a serial killer being a douchebag. <laughs> um, a serial killer who's got a taste for cannibalism, classicism and haute cuisine and had just in a previous scene dispatched of a teen using only, you know, like stag horns. And I thought, oh, God, why are you going to be mean to Will? That's uncalled for. <laughs> That's not really sporting. And can I get... Invite to the next dinner party because I don't know if anyone else feels like this. It's actually really confusingly um, attractive and the food looks good. (laughs) Issues with food, I don't mind admitting it. But we don't have many female characters like that on TV where we know that they're bad but we still embrace them. And it could be because we have restricted views on women. There's that whole kind of um, school of thought that comes from religion and by extension culture where they're they're virgins or they're whores so you know it's the you know damned whore damned whores and god's police and um you know women can either be all good or all bad and it's only men who kind of get to decide what side they're on and there's no point in between so the virgins are the virtuous ones and they uphold what's expected of women what's good about women and that's normally a restriction of action and reaction and then you have the whores who basically are just, they're meant to represent everything people hate about women. And it's generally, um, you know, both are considered to be victims. But men get to be both sides, they get to be in between. And we're, we're seeing more cases of um, complex characters who can be virgins, who can be whores, who can actually be neither. They can just actually be complex people with complex motivations and with complex reactions. So, you know, TV is giving us more unlikable characters. We've got um, Hannah Horvath, who's just one unfriend click away from being a hot, hot mess. And, you know, all we want to do is to see her on Girls, just get her shit together and maybe stop sticking the cotton buds right into the ear. (laughs) That would be a good one. Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec. I mean, she is adorable. But, you know, she's an overbearing control freak as well. Let's, let's just put that one out there. <laughs> I love it, though, when things go her way and she does have her heart in the right place. And I'm going to be a bit more uncharitable here. I think unlike um, 
Amy Jellicoe, Leslie is actually unstintingly good and she is innately altruistic and has compassion and dedication for others and a, and a consideration for others that Jellicoe is just never going to be able to comprehend. Um, but, you know, she's visible, she has unlikable flaws, but they're played for humour and we end up supporting her. And then also um, another one is Carrie Matheson from Homeland, who actually, uh, I've got to say, she uh, completely owns it over Laura Dern. Claire Danes owns it over Laura Dern on the Agri-Tears front. <laughs> and she, um, she battles incalculable odds and still manages to unpick knotty conspiracies and, you know, intimidating organisations. And, you know, she's shagging the bad guy, for fuck's sake. And we're still, you know, supporting her, hoping she's going to get through. And even though, as Saul very correctly tells her, you're the uh, smartest and dumbest fucking person I know, which is actually a really, really good observation about her. But the, the great thing about Carrie that actually ties in with, um, with Amy Jellicoe is that they actually... They actually respond to a not always used archetype of, um, of female characters, which is the angry woman. So you can uh, take that right back to the child-killing Medea who gets her revenge, and you've got some other revenge-based angry women characters. But they're, they're really scary. You know, we, we're really scared of the angry women because angry women are unpredictable. Angry men are completely predictable. You know exactly. In fact, we've got a whole genre of films, most of them starring Bruce Willis, and you know exactly how an angry man is going to react. You don't know that when it comes to the angry women. And, but one of the great things is uh, it's that wonderful kind of contrast of perception versus reality, like when Krista kind of accosts uh, Amy and you know, just sort of says, you're always so angry. Why? And she, she doesn't understand. She doesn't see that in herself. But this is the great thing. Amy's actually at her most real, her most sincere, when she is angry. This whole enlightenment burke is all just a bit of crap. It's a bit of dress-up for her. You know, she's free from that burden of having to try and act enlightened. Her presence scares others. You know, Krista, whenever you see an interaction between her and Krista, Krista actually has the kind of survivor gaze where <laughs> she stands really, really still, but the eyes just sort of widen <laughs> more and more and more. It's like she's waiting for the inevitable because she knows what the real Amy is like. The real Amy... Is, is the angry, unpredictable woman. She's not this new age cheesecloth wearing, you know, worry bead swinging woman. And that's why, because when Amy tries to be perfect, when she tries to be enlightened, she's just, you know, shallow, cloying pain in the ass. You know, her voice reaches bizarre notes that rankle, and, you know, your shoulders kind of curl with, you know, the insincerity of when she's trying to befriend people, and her very attempt to be serene and enlightened feels like a manipulative uh, deception where she gets to play dress-up. And actually, um, she even has daydreams to this effect where it is a, an entire construct. It's even further underplayed when you think about that, um, the imagery of the turtle and the metaphor of the turtle. Um, so when Amy sees it, she communes with it. She gets, she gets energy. She gets her mission. Um, she's in this pristine water. It's all gorgeous. It's, you know, absolutely transcendental, messianic, megalomaniacal kind of shining moment for her. Levi goes, it's filled with crap, there's no turtle there. So he has to make do with the fact that he, he will believe Amy and he will believe her vision. So 
There's a lot of insincerity and constructions going here. And this is actually really particularly amplified when um, Amy's reunited with her rehab buddy, Sandy. With Sandy, who is delightfully empty, she is just a complete husk <laughs> of, um, of, a, of a person. We, get actually, we actually have a smidge of gratitude for Amy develop as a character because at least Amy has depths. You know, they're angry and raw and they're imperfect and they're unpredictable and unlikable, but they're there and they're committed and they're not going to give up. And it's, it's that lack of perfection and the abundance of flaws and without the need for zippy one-liners or polite stoicism that's actually entertaining to us. And uh, it's the hypocrisy of wanting to create peace and truth with change, which is really just born from angry um, Amy's frustration at being powerless and ha not having control, which is just as raw as a need for acceptance and vanity. I mean, I think that I probably differ there in that I, I don't feel like she is actually truly interested in exposing Abaddon. I think she's just actually interested in exposing herself to the mechanisms of change and apparently altruistic service. She would have gone anywhere if she could have, I think, anyway. But we still want her to succeed, despite the fact that you know we dislike her. Because if drama's all about conflict, you want someone who's naturally able to create it wherever they go. And that's Amy Jellico, you know, very act of her trying to be nice is horrifically, cringingly awful. And she's just a, I think she's a terrible person. But don't listen to Ronnie, she's the worst, okay? Um, but when we're supporting unlikable characters, what we're actually supporting is, as, as Elmo said, we're actually supporting the concept of the anti-hero. And so the anti-hero is, you know, they're basically defying our kind of understanding of an archetypal hero because they exist to create beneficial change whilst not actually possessing any heroic or virtuous qualities. And I actually kind of see Amy Jellico in that way because she desperately wishes to be the hero and yet she doesn't contain many good qualities of her own. She's the anti-hero trying to be the hero. So, you know, she's unlikable, she's vain, she's horrible, manipulative. I've got a whole list here. Uncaring, <laughs> self-absorbed, but, you know, she is an agent of change who ultimately is going to create some form of goodness, whether that goodness is a form of angry justice rather than the peace-bringing she wants. That's another area. But to see a perfect hero or heroine kind of battle the odds and emerge victorious with no personal revelation is kind of boring. Um, if this was, if Enlightened had a very serene, truly serene character, it would have been boring. It would not have moved on. We would not have bonded with the character. It's kind of, you know, by the numbers, you know, empty entertainment. It's that... Um, it's the well-worn tracks of police procedurals like Criminal Minds or the cartoon japery of uh, Scooby-Doo kind of formula or, you know, whatever must-see life drama about confused 20 to 30-somethings, Channel 10 is currently trying to package to you as they extracted it from the DNA of The Secret Life of Us. It is boring. But we have Amy Jellico, who is fantastic. You know, she somehow hitched the idea of her personal happiness to this epic goal of enlightenment and community service. And that it's intertwined with her inability to go through a day without offending someone just means that it's more entertainment to us as we watch her on this path. And 
you know, and perhaps it's a it's an embrace of the traits we often reject in ourselves. And you know, sometimes we do cry in toilets, and sometimes we have friendships with people we don't really like or who don't really like us. Um, and you know, sometimes we're so desperate to feel sort of some sort of semblance of control, we're a bit like frustrated screaming babies. And you know, might just be projecting here, but sometimes we just manage to fuck up really good things with our emotions. Um, and the unrestrained chaos that is our personality. And by our, I mean my, but we're all going to ignore that. But to see someone actually achieve and effect change, despite being an unlikable, chaotic insult machine, it's actually pretty good and it gives us hope. Amy, I find it interesting when you're talking about um, the fact that Amy is allowed to make a scene in a way that perhaps women generally aren't expected to and mm. you tied that to this sort of perhaps secret paranoia that we all have that after the party everyone's talking about us the way that they're talking about Amy. But I also wonder whether um, perhaps it's our secret desire to, to make a scene and be that, but as, as uncomfortable as she is and as unlikable as you find her, is there something kind of um, enjoyable about the idea or if I could only say the unsaid and go, at, go at, at it in a way that we're not really supposed to? I think everyone has that impulse for chaos, whether it's positive or not, mm. and it's just completely without morality. It's like, at this point, I could do this and I could just totally fuck shit up. It's like, you know, some people say to you, like, um, oh, when I stand at the platform, there's always this little urge to kind of lurch towards the edge <laughs> of the platform or when I'm on a tall building, I get really close to the, mm -hmm. to the balcony. And it's not actually kind of suicidal ideation or anything like that. It's just I could actually... That there's a, you know... There's a potential for chaos here. There's a potential the for drama. Undoable. Yeah, there, there's a kind of expected behaviour I know I'm not supposed to do, but I've got this kind of slight dumb animal in the back <laughs> of my head saying, you can do it right now. And, you know, it's, yeah, I think that there's something like that that we have just on a primal level, but it also exists on a social level. So, you know, would we actually, you know, lose our crap at a baby shower and start spruiking <laughs> our new feminist work group? No, probably not. But there are some people who would. And it's, it, it's, what's really interesting about it is that it is absolutely horrifying for Krista to see because she feels it ruins her, mm. her baby shower. But at the same time, I don't know if you see Janice, but Janice actually kind of feels slightly vindicated and she's like, bitch is going cray again, love it. And she's, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, some of people actually really depend on the entertainment from mm. Amy Jellico just to be, you know, do those things that no one else does. Well, I guess the thing, you know, are we... As much as we're drawn to empathise with this imperfect character, are we la laughing with her or at her or where are those lines drawn, do you think? I'll throw that out to all of you. <laughs> I don't know. It's not laughing at her. It's just, a, it's just the... Again. <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's actually... What her thing is, I think, is... And maybe I read too much into the character, but um, she's pathologically unable to read other people. Like, she, she just has no social cues. And we sort of find out in that episode with Helen that you can see that her mother just completely shut down the day that her father killed mm -hmm. herself. She is completely shut down. And so you can imagine as a child that you're just not getting anything from your parent, and so she didn't pick up on 
so many social cues mm. to the point where that sort of become pathologised for her. Mm. Like she literally cannot understand why people relate to her in the way mm. that she does. And even she's naive to the point where she doesn't see it coming with the friend who's got the hots for Levi. Mm. Like she mm. does not think that people could do... She just doesn't <laughs> read any social cues really at all. And we get to slowly see maybe where that came from a little bit. I think you ping-pong shot for shot almost. Like when she's having a conversation with somebody and when she's being completely kind of uh, com- completely tone deaf and completely not understanding <laughs> what's happening and just it's it's horrifying like like where this, whenever I see Chris's face on the screen oh, I just no. which is one of the greatest the greatest gifts of humanity I think that anyone has ever has ever given. Uh, you're, it, it's it's amazing, and you and you just think think Amy Jellico, go away, please, and, and stop talking to me, and stop talking to anybody, and just just never, never never talk to another person again. Uh, but then the second that, that you see Laura Dern's face, I I, I don't know, at least I I soften, and I mm. feel like I'm with her a little bit, and I think Krista, please just just be a little bit understanding of your crazy bizarre friend who is fundamentally good, uh, and then it goes to Krista again, and I'm just out of Amy's head. So mm. I think that it, it ping pongs pretty. Well, Well, I'd like to throw it over to the audience now. Um, Does anyone have a question for our panel members? And if you raise your hand, um, Sean, um, we'll bring a mic to you. Or comments thereof. How are you going? Um, So, (laughs) what... Uh, productions have you been involved in uh, that were Australian made? Oh, me? Um, All of us? Yeah. <laughs> Hungry Beast? Yeah, yeah. No, I, no. I worked on Hungry Beast, I worked on Gruen Transfer, worked on um, the, the Catherine Kimbrough feature film, and um, yeah, the ABC shows mainly. Um, okay. Some productions with um, like comedy sketch programs with Channel 9. But nothing like a scripted drama. We don't really, or, or comedy, we don't really have, you've probably noticed, um, a huge number of those produced here. Or in fact any, really. Sadly. Apart from Laid, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we talked about whether we should like Amy a lot, and I think we all kind of can decide <coughs> if we do or not. Like, I quite love her but wouldn't want to be in a room with her. <laughs> Do you think that Tyler actually likes Amy? Oh, I, I, he's very, very exasperated so often and there's almost kind of like a, a fascinating kind of I'm looking at a completely different species I've never come across yeah. before yeah. Yeah. thing. But there... I think he's attracted I to her definitely. Yeah, I think yeah. he can't believe he likes Amy. Yeah. But, he, but he, he does most of the time. Yep. I love him. He's just a revelation of the whole show. Yeah, I think he definitely falls for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to um, argue that uh, Amy, in fact, is uh, enlightened. Um, her experience in the first pilot. Mm. And I, I don't know what people think of enlightened, but it's crap, you know. It's not nice. It's, uh, it's a hard place to be, as I'm sure you'll all agree. That's um, tough being enlightened. And, and Amy comes back, of course, you know, like if you remember the journey from the airport, she's driving her car and she rings up Damon and says, Hi, Damon, it's great. I'm feeling fabulous and I'll come round and talk with you and your wife. You know, and so she just hasn't... 
To me, she lacks, if you like, a spiritual guide. You know, I mean, uh, the problem for her is she doesn't know how to handle uh, this experience. I think that that's. I think that that's true. And look, one of the things that I'm actually really interested in with this show is how it dismantles the very conventional kind of consumer-based types of traditional enlightenment as we've got going currently, which is you go on course, you buy things, you go to conferences. With crystals. Yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all the crystals. It, you, know, you could just take a quick trip to Ishka and you are in, as enlightened as possible. Um, or you can do hard, sometimes humiliating work that requires a lot of negotiation and possibly self-knowledge... <laughs> Um, because we are dealing with a lead character who has very little self-knowledge. Mm. But I would argue that Mike White is actually showing us the true path to enlightenment across these two seasons and that towards the end, you've actually got this beautiful flip of, from the pilot where she's you know, scraping open the doors and screaming at people and calling them motherfuckers and whatever to the you know, end of season two where Charles Zidon's going, I'm going to fucking get you, I'm going <laughs> to fucking sue you. And she's just, no, you don't bother me. I'm, I'm not rattled by this. I know where I'm at now. I actually kind of, I thought that there was actually a really interesting uh, discussion about what enlightenment meant for those different people. Mm. I think it um, also highlights those really just bizarre and particularly American attitudes to money. Like, we find out afterwards that it costs her, like, $47,000 or something. I can't remember the exact fee. But it's, like, this enormous amount of tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And she's just like, oh, yeah, that's now my reality. Oh, well. Like, it's, like, $47,000 in debt. I've just been, like, unceasingly thinking about that to the point where I was at the aneurysm when I got up in the morning. Like, and this is also what is sort of gotten to the heart of the American corporate culture and that sort of you know, big end money. And I think that those are really sort of, like you're talking about the commercialisation mm. of enlightenment, those are sort of very particularly American concerns and I found some of those elements sort of harder to relate to, like just wondering how many people go on these kinds of rehabs and come mm. back and crushing tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt and just like, oh yeah, that's like now what I have now. I wonder what we would have seen of Levi's life in season three as well in terms oh, of the financial realities of having done that. He has no prospects, he has no job. But it's interesting because Helen is an interesting counterpoint to that culture mm. because she is appalled by having a debt of that magnitude yeah. Yeah. and yeah. her house is some kind of 60s time warp of yeah. you know little crocheted throws and things and it's clear that she hasn't bought into that kind of mindset. So she's sort of like the, the offside of that where, you know, we can position ourselves with her perspective to a certain degree. Yeah, and she thing. absolutely has no time for Amy's, you know, journey at oh, all. Oh, my God. At all. There was that part where in the pilot where Amy comes home and she's rushing back to have a meeting, um, like a job interview to see what she can do. And she said, Mum, I meditated about us. I mean, you know, <laughs> but the poor mum doesn't know what... How to kind of pass that in her reality whatsoever? <laughs> it had no place in her reality. No, none no. whatsoever. <laughs> her mom's responses to Sandy are, I think, my favourite. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the <laughs> her, her to them doing yoga. Totally, totally, that's incredible. <laughs> and just just the the abject horror of, <laughs> of seeing a person who is exactly like her in in this weird surface way, mm. but happens not to be her daughter. It's just it, it's really awful. Um, but also, I kind of I love how. 
She just doesn't lend her her car. <laughs> 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 but then we then. find out why, though. Yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah. You're just yeah. like, right, okay. Let's see why. Okay, right. It's slightly more reasonable why you're being so hard. You've lived with this your yep. whole life. Yeah. But yeah, in okay. a sense, that you know, like she's Amy. Then is, is still a t- the teenage daughter. Like yes, you know, she's returned much. to the to her. She's living with mum, but she's yeah. still acting like the teenager, and she's still yeah. being treated by the teenager, and she's still yeah. got the teenager's mm. paranoia about. Oh, does everyone like me? Because I think that's actually the point of the character that her like a development is arrested at that point like she she didn't develop beyond emotionally beyond that point when her father died and yet I think you know as imperfect as that makes her it's also a point of empathy for us because I think there's still part of our brainstem that is that paranoid insecure little teenager who has those thought processes even if hopefully they don't enact them as as terribly as blaming really isn't she she just acts completely unchecked on impulse Mm. almost all the time and she doesn't have, you know, like an ego or a superego to keep those other parts of her in check. She just acts Nothing. purely on... And that's really noble to her. That's, mm. like, the most authentic... <laughs> that's, that's the most authentic true. life, yeah. is to be really yeah. real. And it's so childlike or, you know, adolescent mm. almost in that way. Yeah. We had another question over here, I think. Um, I actually found myself reading a New York Times article about Mike White from about two years ago. And he's completely fascinating because he actually he gets really invested in reality television, like <laughs> Real Housewives, and he was actually on The Amazing yeah. Race with his father. Twice, really? Twice, yes. yes. Oh my god! Yeah. Fine. Look, amazing. Seriously, Google it. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Like you have to read. Which it. seasons? And yeah, no, we need to. And does he? How far does he go? Sorry. How far does he go? Oh, don't worry. He, he goes pretty in the first one with his dad. He goes, they go pretty well. I think in the second one where they were like, it was like an all stars thing. He was kind yeah, of yeah. booted out fairly quickly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he, he ended up just like sitting poolside in Thailand somewhere, just like waiting for that to finish up. Anyway, um, apparently one of the most common criticism he, criticisms he received in writing the show is that they're like, oh, you're you're sort of. Um, looking down on these people. You're mocking them, you're being smug. And he said, well, no, I don't feel that way. Mm. It, might, it may be mocking, but it's not smug. It might be smug, but it's not mocking. And I was wondering mm. what you might think about that. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't, well, especially in his portrayal uh, of Tyson, I didn't feel that. Actually, I felt like there was a lot of love given to a lot of the characters. The only character for whom I was slightly... Um, I felt like it was a bit kind of one note just for the yucks was Dougie. And then, but mm. then the whole thing about that was that uh, Mostef was supposed to play Dougie mm. and at the last moment, which happens often with things that Mostef is contracted to do, um, <laughs> he decides that he's not going to do it for whatever reason. And it, it's almost like an, a macro for the internet. But, um, but yes, and then they got in um, Tim... Tim something or other. It's Tim with two M's. But I felt like he was probably the one I felt it was a bit... Even though I used to work in the internet industry and I do remember coming across people like that, especially in the heady days of, you know, dot-com era, I didn't feel like he was kind of fully kind of realised or as Mm. nuanced or as... That there was that core of emotion within... Yeah, that was kind of a portrayal of a lot of people at the company, I thought. Like, at the top, like, the executives, they were sort of very one-note characters as well, which we were meant to hate. You know, they weren't going to really be drawn as in-depth as everybody else. But no, I didn't think that there was any condescension or 
um, mean-spiritedness in the portrayal of any of the characters. That was just my interpretation mm. of it. I didn't feel like he was being... It's interesting that you say that, you know, we're, we're supposed to hate the sort of top guns, and definitely they're set up as these kind of evil villains, but mm. at the same time, Mike White said, um, said in an interview that Sidon has a point when he criticises Amy and said, look, mm. you've just got all these highfalutin ideas, but you have no real clue mm. how the world works or what you're going to replace mm. this with. You know, it's just... You know, it's all very well to how it deals, but you have nothing practical at all to back it up. And sort of why says, you know, on the one hand, we do sort of side with Amy and her hope, you know, like that, that emotional hope. But Simon has a point, you know, mm. so he is kind of slightly sort of saying, well, yeah. yes, that criticism is valid, yeah. you know. I think in some ways all the, all the mocking moments, uh, all, the, all the moments, which, which I do think they're, they're absolutely smug moments, they're absolutely condescending uh, mocking moments, I think that they're, they're really there to make the moments of, of, of grace and redemption pay off. But that, I, I guess that just speaks to my, my perception on the show. Like, uh, but, I, but I think that, that Dougie, Dougie is, really, is really thin compared to all the other characters. Yeah. But the thing I always remember about him is, is right at the very end where he's collapsed against that wall with Amy and they're just it's not like like that, that there's any massive depth to him at that moment but you see him when he's kind of emotionally spent and doesn't know what to do next mm. and, and you empathize with him for a moment and I think that that wouldn't work unless you'd seen him be such a tool for so long yeah. Uh, and yeah I, I think that, that all the, the mockingness is there to to make those those moments of, of, of people at their not not even necessarily their best but at their truest feel mm. feel real I think you know with Dougie and Amy it's interesting that they're sort of parallels to a certain degree because they're both people struggling with their superficiality you know that that they are all surface and that there's that fear that maybe there isn't much else underneath and so yes I agree that Dougie's sort of underdeveloped Mm. but in some ways he's a reflection of Amy for me in some ways yeah it's interesting how they're kind of left together at the end Mm. when everybody else has sort of like a, a appreciated or thought about what she's done from afar, like mm-hmm. her mum looking at the newspaper and mm-hmm. everybody else has just gone on and done something a little bit different with their life and they, they, it's a really distant ramification for what she's, what she's done, but mm-hmm. she's with him in that moment, which I thought was mm-hmm. an odd choice at the time I saw it, but you saying that mm-hmm. makes it make a bit more sense, I think. Mm-hmm. Are there any more questions? I'm just curious to hear where you think Amy ended up post-season two, or what you would have liked to see Amy continue to do if there were a season three. Well, there were plans that he had mentioned. They were going to bring the sister Bethany in, and it was going to be kind of a... They'd gone through a kind of a mockery of the corporate culture and they were going to then go through a mockery of the legal system when she was being sued by Charles Sidon. Um, so all of that, I think he, you were saying that he had a really yeah, meticulously had, yeah. planned, so and she was, was going to counter sue. So yeah. that was sort of yeah. 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 So she would have been. He his idea was that she would have been finally sort of held to account for her actions, and so well, we don't know. She might have stayed the same throughout that entire process mm. as well. But but yeah, he had talked about there being finally her confrontation with the reality of what she had done. So mm. you know, potentially even more financial ruin than her or <laughs> already mountains of, of debt. Um, but I think like we sort of talked about it does resolve itself so beautifully but they're also so vividly drawn that we can sort of imagine that and it's Mm. quite real for us to imagine 
I, I certainly would have. I, I, um, I echo some of the thoughts um, mentioned here about wanting to see her have some social media meltdowns because <laughs> if there's nothing social media loves more, it's conspicuous compassion. Yeah, she's such a oversharer too. Yeah, oh, isn't she? would just she? be like so inappropriate. Yeah. She would speak, yeah. She, she would blog the shit out of that place. <laughs> oh, yeah. She'd be saying, like, privileged things that you're not allowed to talk about in ongoing court cases. She'd just be, like, <laughs> telling people that, like... Yeah, they would have to replace the jury, like, three yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know, I know what, I, what I would have wanted to happen in season three, apart from that, is, is I... And I, it would never have happened, and I think it's not realistic. It has no relationship to, to the way that relationships really work. I want Amy and Levi to get back yeah. together. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that, that yeah. they... Yeah. That journalist was a douchebag. I really didn't yeah. like him. He was such a dick, wasn't <laughs> he? Yep. Mm-hmm. You could sort of peg it from early that he was going to turn yeah. on her. Like, but she couldn't. Again, no. she's got no way of reading no. people, and no, she's no. just so naive. She looked at his bookshelf. No, no, I agree. Look, I have the same, you know, naive romantic impulse to see that sort of couple work. And yet, I think perhaps having it end the way it does, there's something beautifully poignant in that, that that uncomfortable, not quite resolved, but connected relationship. There's something really lovely in that, that perhaps if they had got together, it would have been a bit... Yeah, as much as I as it was sort of wish fulfilment, it might have been a bit of hope, harm, or that's too neat kind yeah, of. It's so hard to sell, like. Well, exactly. Yeah, I don't yeah. think they would have given us that, actually. Yeah. I think that even though we wanted that, like, it was too true to life for that to have worked out. Maybe she might have had some, you know, um, moments of self reflection where she finally let him go, which is the thing that someone who mm. loves someone like mm. that should do, like, you know, to. Mm to do the best thing by him, which was to leave him alone, which is what he kept asking her to do. Like, <laughs> just leave me alone. And she, she wouldn't, because she still, you know, feels like she can fix someone else. Mm-hmm. Tyler, I got my ultimate payoff at the end of season two because Tyler stayed in his relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much, that's all I wanted. The ghost was seen. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh, <laughs> but I think that that's the sort of substitute for, you know, like we get that romantic resolution yeah. there where yeah. we can't, you know, it's not realistic for us to get it with Levi and Amy, even, even though we want it. <laughs> so what happens to Levi? Is he just sad forever? <laughs> <laughs> Very possible. Maybe Amy could have gotten him a pet turtle or something. Yeah. yeah. Also, was it leaves on their roof? Why was their roof so weird? You know, the roof of Amy's mum's house? I was like, has that got junk stuck on it? Or is that like... Stucco? Oh, yeah. Is it on purpose? So I would like to have had that resolved. That's yeah, a big question. That's a big question that I had. That's a big question. I'm there with you. I've got you back on that one. Oh, and the little ducks in the pond. What happened to, in the pool? What happened to them? Oh, the, pool, the, the whole layout of that garden, I've got to say, actually really confused me. It's I never got bizarre. It's completely bizarre. Yeah. yeah. Or the outside balcony that had the kind of plastic covering. and. Oh, yeah, where were they sitting when they were having that dinner? I have I to actually it. sort out house plans in my head for every <laughs> TV show I watch. And there are websites, bless them, where they do have collections of house plans for every TV series for, for different characters. I think and um, they're, they're damn good. What you, what, what you had been saying about how we can accept these horrible male characters mm. is so obvious when you start picking it apart. Like, you know, Dexter literally murders people. Yeah. Don Draper is a sociopath who destroys yeah. everyone who comes into his life. Yeah. So is Walter White. And yeah. all of these characters, everyone's just like, they're so 
cool. Like underneath, yeah. there are still people who will root for those people. It's like you're missing the point of the character. But this person, Amy, doesn't kill anyone. No. <laughs> no. You know, it's like, she she's not. not sociopathy, is she, anyway? She's, no, yeah, she's not. She's not her true sociopath. Like and everyone's like, she's the worst. Yes. <laughs> like, God damn it. She ugly bad. cried. <laughs> <laughs> Running mascara? I'm sorry, I draw She's the line. She's the C word. That's no lady. And then, you know, Tony Soprano's like ordering hits on his own cousins. Like, yeah. Just take that and guy and shagging like, oh, receptionists yeah. that he's met two seconds earlier. Yeah. But do you really root for Tony Soprano? Really, really? No, like... we maybe don't, but I think there was <laughs> definitely a subset of the audience yeah, okay. who did. I think, I think, well, no, I actually think I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say, yeah, no, I do. I, I want. You, when you watch drama, there is a part of you that is conditioned to want redemption for people. And he's the ultimate kind of, you know, well, not the ultimate, but he's a, certainly an incredibly flawed character. And you do want redemption for him because he is conflicted and there is this aspect of him that does want to get better. You want, um, you know, some kind of solace for all these people. But, you know, as I was saying before, I actually can't believe that I got to a point where I had expectations of ethical behaviour from Hannibal Lecter. Charisma <laughs> 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 you know, goes really far. It's, it's all about the mads. But I mean, like, uh, and I had a lot of friends who were actually really shocked by their reaction to that. And where we have these characters, where even though they're openly flawed, we do end up bonding with them and responding to them. And you know, look, why is that? We have a greater acceptance and tolerance from it from men. I mean, like, you know, of the characters that we were talking about, most of them either self-identify or are pretty much diagnosable as kind of sociopathic, psychopathic um, or, you know, major disorder characters. And, you know, that's great. That's great for conflict. But at the same time, we can't seem to accept that from female characters because suddenly it's all ugly and, you know, you know everyone hates Walt's wife. Um, you yeah. know, everyone hates Betty Draper. Yeah, everyone hates Betty Draper. Like, oh my God, please! Yeah. Uh, so yeah, mm, it's, it's an interesting, interesting. It's an interesting contrast. Getting back to um, the house of Helen's house, that, that that clip that you showed from mm. that episode all about Helen, that's a creepy, uncanny space. Like those, mm. those mm. bits of furniture, like they're. It's not just that from another era. They seem kind of haunted and creepy I mean quite literally in that 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 scene but that those spaces don't make sense and they're very wrong <laughs> it, it's an occupied space isn't it I mean the garage is never filled with a car again yeah. because yeah. well it's already filled with ghosts that's why yeah that's right and she's yeah. very trapped there in, yeah. that, in that moment and you know that fills in so much for us about why she leaves the house untouched and yeah. you know why she still lives emotionally in that time and the only life happens in the garden mm. and she has to bring it into the house occasionally mm. and that's her only way of kind of channeling it that mm. kind of that energy through mm. so yeah it's she's a fascinating character and in that sense I mean like and you know yes I am OCD and I do enjoy looking at um house plans but the house especially in this is a character and in many tv series you do have places where the houses all the apartments become a character or they become you know, a metaphor for something. In this case, it's Helen's you know, close attachment to a time when things did feel better. And, you know, and the worst thing that happens is that she's stuck in this home that she used to love with a man that she did love and who was gone. And it's awful and it's torturous, but it's all she has and she's going to cling to it at the same time. By extension, then, she's another unlikable character that we find empathy with. Yeah. You know, she, she's the bad mother yeah. that 
that, yeah. that we're not supposed to be. And yet in that episode, we find great empathy with her. Yeah, I think right mm. up until that episode, I don't think I've hated a character in television as much as I hated mm. her character. Oh, really? Yeah, she was just so cruel. She's so undermining and she's mm. really underhanded and she just takes apart Amy's personhood just mm. with these horrible snide remarks. It's like, oh, my God, this is just no wonder your daughter is so <laughs> screwed up. And then we see that she's just as in pain mm. and why mm. she is. It's interesting because Laura Dern has sort of said that, you know, her relationship with her mother is nothing like that, that they have a really good relationship. But she also said that, you know, when she worked on her in early films together, like every single word would be a trigger, you know, like whereas now every tenth word would be a trigger. So it's still that sort of idea that, you know, that the mother has this ability to just, you know, yeah. get under the skin and hit where it hurts. Yeah. You know. uh, we probably have yeah. time for maybe one last question. Sure. So tonight it was a really thorough breakdown of um, the character and my only question now is what next for the strong, complex female lead character? Mm. I think we should just strip the word female from that next. Like it would be really great if we could just see increasingly complex, interesting characters. And mm. yeah, I, this is a pipe dream, right? But it's, I think, it, <laughs> yeah, I think that, that it's, it's that, that whole idea. Um, of, of this writer for what was it? What was the magazine for? I, I read this online article that you were referring the to, like the, yeah, the hatred of the strong woman. Oh yeah, Which yeah, yeah. Really new, in the, it was in New Statesman. It was in the New Statesman, mm-hmm. and it's a really, really fantastic article. Uh, Sophia McDougall. Yeah. Although I have to say, it's going to make me sound like super daggy, but. Anyway, um, <laughs> there has been a show which is amazing along race, gender and class lines for 20 years, which is Law and Survivor. Order. Yep. Yeah. And Survivor. Yeah. Very quickly. <laughs> Sorry. Very quickly. Second. You couldn't go an evening without getting Survivor in there. Law and Order has these amazingly um, complex and um, very, you know, uh, forthright and intellectually strong and otherwise complex and just real mm. women and men characters and they're absolutely mixed completely down the line between the two. And mm. it's been going on for 20 years, but it's like trashy TV, so people are like, oh no, that doesn't count in the canon of important television, but I think <laughs> it really it really does, and so there is some existing, but like Ronnie says, it would be better if people just were <laughs> thinking of them as characters as opposed to um, to female characters, but we're like realistically still ages away from that. Yeah, I think, I, I, there, there are certainly examples of it, but it's whether there's the momentum, the critical mass of them, where it becomes less a case of wow, here's five great female characters who were complex rather than here's five characters we're really enjoying, you know. So you do kind of feel like there's a, a slight kind of ghettoization or whatever it is for, you know, oh, look, here comes the females. It's, it's not that. It's, it's more about where can we get some really interesting narrative happening? Where can we get some interesting character development happening? And there are, there are really interesting shows coming out and people are trying new things, they're trying new methods of delivery, which I can only hope means that there's going to be greater experimentation in storytelling as well. Um, uh, but it, it's going to take a while. I think the other thing that we also need to do is hold back on the when a, a show comes out that does have a predominance of women in it. We've got to hold back from that tendency of, oh, my God, that doesn't answer every single ethnic... Racial, gender, <laughs> you know, consumer, minority, you know, every kind of privileged discussion or whatever it is that we've got. Because 
we seem to be at this kind of very, very simplistic point where we're expecting at least one show or one story creator to answer all of the world's concerns when it comes to entertainment. And I feel that if we're going to continue down that path, and I'm using, for example, the current criticisms of um, Orange is the New Black, Girls, etc., etc., where they're criticised for, you know, not having enough racial diversity or not having enough privileged diversity or not having enough sexual diversity or, you know, things like that, they're not going to be able to do that. And we're not... We shouldn't be looking at stories to actually answer these problems. What we should be looking at is getting good stories out there and working out how to move on from there. Entertainment can't solve all these problems on its own. I think we have some very unreasonable expectations there. I read a cool thing the other day about Jodie Foster's agent, which is that she only gives parts to her that could be gender-flipped. Yeah. So she only ever has, for the last 10, 15 years, taken those roles because her exact idea is I don't mm. want there to be a gender attached to what I'm doing. I yeah. just want a great, strong character. So yeah. she's, make sure, she's like, unfortunately, they're not getting written for women most of the time yeah. <laughs> and she has to flip them. But, you know, it is happening. That's kind of yeah. cool. And it's great that she probably, that she presumably has the power to flip them as well. Yeah, because like, like, she gets yeah. the movie signed yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. up to yeah. certain yeah. points. So That's like, great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We need more Jodie Foster's flipping characters. Flipping characters, flipping tables. With Jodie Foster. Yeah, okay, I want it. I want it. Well, on that note, we may we please uh, thank our panellists, Ronnie, Elmo and Amy. Thank you. And thank you all for coming on. Yes, we thank you all for coming out. And um, before I say a big thanks, I just wanted to point out that, Ronnie, I'm completely with you with the Amy Levi thing. And I know that a lot of TV shows quite often live on after they're cancelled through fan fiction. I actually Googled this. <laughs> Nobody has written any Amy Jellico fan fiction at all. <laughs> so please, somebody, put your hand up for that job. <laughs> put it out there. But for now, thank you very much to uh, our chair, Jamie Baker, and our three speakers tonight. <laughs> You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.